But just as Norman said there, we have a prepared talk this evening, which is the first part, and then the second part we have the row. And there's a refreshment break in the middle. So if you'll bear with me just to lay things out for you with the talk. So, undoubtedly something truly astonishing happened in the 5th and 6th century BC when there was a vast expansion in human consciousness wherein the Upanishads and the Buddha, the mind and the senses were transcended with the extraordinary discovery of the nature of what lay beyond. And what lay beyond was described as the absolute reality. That which was the same, a unity, one without a second, unchanging and the same source of all, including yourself and myself. Here was the supreme achievement of the human race when beyond the ego we opened ourselves to the transcendent. This was the profound insight reached in India in this period, a fourth state of consciousness behind the phenomenon of the ever-changing, beyond the world of thinking and doing, lay that which was unchanging, the unchanging source of the universe, the source of humanity, the source of all. In India, the name given to this absolute reality, experienced beyond thought, was Brahman, which simply means that entity to whose expansion or immensity there is no limit. The Upanishads expressed this profound mystical experience in many wonderful ways as well as in simple, succinct language. Verily, in the beginning, this was Brahman, one only. What was even more astonishing was that at the same time, right across the known world, and apparently independently, similar discoveries were being made. In Greece, Pythagoras and Heraclitus and others were discovering what they called the Logos as the basis of the universe. The Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, were simultaneously discovering the transcendent God, while in China, Lao Tzu also pointing beyond the familiar everyday world of appearance was teaching the name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. And then with the arrival on the scene of Jesus of Nazareth, the word was made flesh and a great cycle of revelation was complete. The mythological figures of Shiva and Vishnu, the semi-historical Rama and Krishna, and the historical Buddha and Jesus now presented the transcendent truth in every way to meet the minds at different stages of development all the way from the mythological through to the historical.
The records left by those who have known it leave no doubt that they were all trying to describe that which was the same. But it was not easy to describe. Even Jesus, the master communicator, leaves us struggling to understand in his description, as reported in John, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. What could he mean? Clearly acknowledging the difficulty for us, on another occasion, he said, this time, speaking to his immediate disciples, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. So in the attempt to describe that which essentially lay beyond description, the various traditions came up with different esoteric names in their attempt to name the nameless. For example, it was known as Tao or Dao in China, Sunyata in Buddhism, Brahman in Hinduism, the Godhead in Christianity, Al-Hag in Islam, the Logos in Greece, Gnosis in Egypt. Now, interestingly enough, along with these different names, there were also different ways or different levels that the same transcendent truth came to be appreciated. Where it was known as God, it demanded worship. Where it was appreciated as infinity, it demanded wonder. Where it was known as truth, it demanded wisdom. And where it was known as one's true self, called for identity. So in summary, for some good reason, this breakthrough in consciousness, which revealed the true self of all, happened in this period across the known world. The experience was the same, although different names were used to describe it. Also, the subsequent approaches to it varied from worship to seeking to identify with it. Now, practically all religion and philosophy today stems from the great events of this key period in history. And not surprisingly, the purpose of every genuine religion and philosophy now was clear to reveal the transcendent truth and teach the way to its attainment. A simple and single aim. And again, miraculously, right from the start, this simple and single aim was embodied in what is known as the holy tradition or the perennial philosophy and which remains unchanged right down to this day. At the core of this holy tradition or perennial philosophy, we find just 
four fundamental doctrines. Now, these doctrines are just as important today as when they were first revealed all those centuries ago. And notice as we consider them how each rises from the basis of the transcendent unity and that the language is acceptable in religious or philosophical terms. And as we consider them, perhaps more important, see how they strike an immediate chord with us, irrespective of where we're coming from in this meeting this evening. So, first of these four principles in the perennial philosophy is the divinity of the soul. Now, simply stated, hidden in the heart of every creature, there is that divine spark or divine light of the soul, pure, perfect, and complete, the transcendent reality which was discovered by the wise. While all the individual bodies appear separate and different, it is this same divine light which enlivens them all and without which they simply would not exist. And it is this same divine equity which is the unshakable spiritual basis of democracy and which entitles all men to our respect and the right to self-determination and freedom and all the other noble aspirations of modern minds. Forget this divine equity. Leave it out of account and the door is open to reasonable arguments for exploitation and oppression. The second doctrine in the perennial philosophy is the unity of existence. Now simply stated, the doctrine of the unity of existence says that everything is connected. The doctrine of the unity of existence points us beyond appearance to the underlying unity of everything. A bit like pointing beyond the different forms of a cup and saucer to the same clay out of which they are both formed. And it is this unity which is the foundation of justice and all ethical codes and which lies at the heart of the great Christian commandment to love your neighbor as yourself the unity of existence. The golden rule of Christianity can only be understood and appreciated when it is realized that by hurting others, one really hurts oneself. And conversely, that by making others happy, one brings happiness to oneself. Without understanding the underlying unity, then it is simply a case of might is right where inevitably the strong will oppress and bully the weak. The third doctrine, the oneness of the Godhead. In the Eastern tradition, the Gita tells us, for many are the paths of men, but they all in the end come to me. The different names honored and worshiped by the various religions are but symbols which enable finite minds to grasp the same transcendent infinite. 
So what is needed is steadfast loyalty to one's own ideal and positive respect, not just toleration for the ideals of others. And fourth and finally, and probably the one of greatest interest to us this evening, is the harmony of religions. Perhaps the most important, at the core of this doctrine, we are reminded that religion itself is not the goal, but simply the means. You can go to Belfast by bus, by train, or by plane. The destination is the same but the means very different. And we should not confuse the means with the destination. And certainly we should not think that the means is the destination. The object of the exercise is not to be a Hindu or a Catholic or a Jew. Rather, these are simply the means by which the aspirant wherever he finds himself, pursues the ultimate perfection, the single destination, to unite with the divine ground or discover the true self. Different religions are necessary to suit different minds at different levels of evolution. The universal religion runs through them all in the form of God consciousness which is the foundation of them all. And naturally, therefore, religion should emphasize harmony, not dissent, unity, not discord, friendship, not enmity, and, of course, love and not hate. In the holy tradition, both philosophy and religion, faith and reason, are harmonized, which accounts for its adequacy and its universality. So it is perfectly possible for people to remain good Christians, good Hindus, good Buddhists, Muslims, and yet be united in full agreement on the basic doctrines of this perennial philosophy. With philosophy and religion, if you take one to the exclusion of the other, then the adequacy and the universality are lost. Just as religion without philosophy can become dogmatic and superstitious, so philosophy without religion can degenerate into a dry intellectualism. You need both. Both are needed so that a true philosopher has something of the spirit of awe and adoration and reverence cherished by the religious person and a truly religious person is not without the intellectual understanding and insight which are the chief characteristics of the philosopher. However, this was not so easy as right from the beginning there were two different or if you like separate ways to proceed. You recognize these immediately. Those who liked to worship 
would proceed through religion, emphasizing faith and seeking God, while those who liked to know would proceed through philosophy, emphasizing reason and seeking truth. While the goal of philosophy may be truth, and the goal of religion God, in the final experience, God and truth are one and the same reality. So uh, what went wrong? Now although always evolving and in many different directions, both philosophy and religion did live happily together for a long time until eventually, particularly in the West, in our part of the world, they went their separate ways. Now here's a fundamental point that we need to be clear about. It is important to note that the arguments and divisions which arose, no matter how bitter or divisive they were, were not about the destination, the existence of the transcendent unity. They were not about that but rather about the means, the approach, the relationship between the transcendent and the personal God, the created world, and the human being. Even within the Christian family, we would all be aware of how very bitter, simple differences of approach can be to the same transcendent truth, not to mention the much greater differences between Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. Now these arguments started to appear particularly in the West around the 15th and 16th century. And they came to a head in the 19th century as the new materialist philosophy. This modern materialist philosophy did not just appear overnight it had been evolving for several centuries from Aristotle, whom, curiously enough, the Christian Church had followed along with Islam. The medieval and hugely influential theologian St. Thomas Aquinas was an Aristotelian philosopher, and he persuaded the Church to go in this direction, even though there were those highly sceptical churchmen at the time concerned that it would lead to a materialist outcome. In spite of their concerns, the brilliant Aquinas prevailed, and Aristotle was the man. Now what is characteristic about this Aristotelian model is the belief that human knowledge is based on the evidence of the senses. And it was this understanding that came to dominate philosophy after the 16th century to the exclusion of the more profound view of Plato. In an attempt to give an example of the difference between the two views, I'd like you to look at this diagram, if you have enough energy, and tell me whether or not this is a perfect circle. 
No, no, it's, it's generally no, okay. I beg your pardon, okay. All right, how do we know that it's not a perfect circle? It's a simple answer, it's not a trick question. We know it's not perfect because we know what a perfect circle is. Is that fair enough? So that's, yeah. Where is that knowledge contained? In us? How many circles do you have in mind? Or is one enough? Okay. And is that which you have in mind, this one circle in mind, an idea in your mind? It's a concept or an idea. Okay. How long do you think that idea has been around? First time you saw the circle? And how long was the idea around? Was it around before you saw your first circle? <laughs> yeah. So how long has the idea been around of the perfect circle? A long, long time. Okay. How long do the circles we draw last? Do they last forever? So if you could just follow through that example that the idea circle is eternal, it remains forever. It is perfect and it is one, it is eternal and it is the same. By contrast, all the circles which we make are merely temporary passing reflections of this perfect ideal and therefore because they come to pass, do not have the same reality. So the idea is real and lasts, the representations of it come to pass. Are you clear about that? This is an attempt to understand the Platonic view. Plato would hold that this was the truth about the whole creation, that reality lay in the transcendent ideas rather than in the appearance. The ultimate idea being the idea of the good and this contained all the rest. And how you got to the good, he described also, it was accessed through transcending the mind through a process called dialectic, which led you to a finer and finer and finer conclusions in your argument until usually and ultimately you arrived at a point where you could go no further and you had moved from knowing to not knowing. And in that step you moved from limited to unlimited. Or if you liked, you moved into the area of the transcendent. You moved from the finite to the infinite. By contrast, Aristotle, the great scientist and biologist, would oppose this absolutely, arguing that you could only have the idea the idea of a circle in virtue of the form. You had to have the form before you got the idea. So that the idea circle depends on the form. So if Aristotle was around today, he'd be at the cutting edge of the scientific community, probably be interested in the genome or genetic engineering, or he'd be working for NASA or somewhere in the scientific world, trying to understand to examining the phenomenal creation, whether moon rocks or 
uh, DNA, trying to discover the origins of life. Both men were pointing in different directions. One to the transcendent, unchanging forms or ideas, and the other to the ever-changing but tangible appearances. Some of you may have seen this. There is a famous painting. If you haven't seen it in Rome, you may have seen it around. And it's called The School of Athens. In fact, we have it here. You may recognize it. School of Athens, where the 27-year-old Renaissance painter Raphael, in this masterpiece full of secret references, depicts both men, Aristotle and Plato, walking and talking in the Platonic Academy. You will know that Plato was the elder and Aristotle was the pupil. Plato was the master, Aristotle the pupil. Now notably, and you would have to suspect that this was done deliberately, Plato is pointing up, holding the Timaeus, and Aristotle is had his hand down towards the earth, carrying the ethics. These are the two different works, two different points of view of these two men. One pointing to the transcendent origins and the other pointing to the appearance. You happy with that? Under the influence of Aristotle, two key figures to emerge in the 16th century when these all started to go off the rails a bit. And they were René Descartes and Francis Bacon. Now Descartes was the first to separate and make a distinction between mind and matter. This is what he said. The mind, as an observer, looks out at the universe, extended outside us. Can you hear the separation coming in there? And in further advocating the primacy of thinking, you know his famous remark, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So here was Descartes advocating the primacy of thinking and the separation of mind and matter. Now curiously, if you asked any first year practical philosophy student, they would confirm that in their experience it is only having transcended thought and fallen still that there is a uniting with or a confirmation of the eternal presence of being. However, it is this separation of mind and matter that marks the beginning of modern philosophy. The other man that I mentioned, Bacon, was a different kettle of fish. His desire was not to understand the universe, but to control it. His influence marks the beginning of modern technology, which is still evolving and a huge influence in every aspect of our lives today, from birth to death. I'm going to read you a piece that I pulled out from a magazine recently. And listening to it, see if you can trace this quotation. It's about death. See if you can trace this quotation back to the thinking of a Bacon seeking to control rather than understand the creation. 
Time was when death happened with dignity in the familiar surroundings of one's home, with a few well-chosen words in the bosom of the family. Now, it is socially acceptable only when every desperate remedy fails. Life can even become a drug and machine-fed limbo that ends with the click of a switch. Sound familiar? There's another example here, just to help us. Because machines could be progressively made more efficient, Western men came to believe that men and societies would, with the simple passage of time, automatically register a corresponding improvement. The effect of all this was quite dramatic. And see if you agree with this. The effect was that attention no longer looked to eternity, but rather to some utopian future. Just around the corner, here on Earth. And it didn't stop there. Fueled by the breathtaking discoveries of science, the understanding grew that the only real knowledge is that which can be measured and therefore understood mathematically. This meant that everything else, art, morality, religion, were all subjective and not real knowledge. And here are Bacon's own words to succinctly summarize that. That's that second example we had. He said, knowledge is the fruit of experience. So it comes through the senses, through experience. People are the interpreters of nature. So people determine what nature is. And truth is not derived from authority. So you can forget about your scriptures and anything like that. Now, even though other scientists like Newton and indeed Descartes believed in God and an organic creation, the thinking grew that Newton's mechanical model of the cosmos offered not only the complete picture of reality, but the only picture of reality. There was no room any longer for theology, ethics, or aesthetics, and now that it was known how the cosmos worked, God was no longer necessary. The existence of the soul could be explained in terms of chemistry of the nervous system, neurochemistry. Freud pioneered this work using the newly discovered mechanical forces ruling nature to explain the unconscious. All human thought, all morality and all religion could also be explained in terms of mechanical forces working in the unconscious. There was a sad uh, consequence to all this because inevitably philosophy and religion went their separate ways with what was disastrous consequences for both. But the real tragedy was that the unity had been lost.
Again, see if you can agree with this. Religion staggered on, ruled by the outer forms of book, rite, and ritual. But the inner spirit of religion had been dealt a serious, if not mortal, blow. While Asia continued as the voice of mysticism and religion and the internal world, Europe and the West, under the continuing Greek influence, had become the voice of science, politics, and the external world. We have Aristotle and Aquinas. Clearly, this East-West divide was not just a matter of simple geography. Rather, it reflected the division in the mind itself between the thinking part of the mind and the intuitive part of the mind. The thinking, if you like, scientific mind in us is the home of the ego. It is driven by what I like. It loves calculation and processes. It is never satisfied. It is always seeking more, more of everything, and it's so it proceeds and drives us through acquisition. The intuitive mind, by contrast, is the home of the intellect. And with its gifts of reason and discrimination, it is that in us which knows what is true. It knows what is true. It doesn't depend on any external forces. It comes with the kit. It knows what is true. It works in stillness. And so the mark of it is to surrender everything. Or if you like, the sound of the thinking mind in us is, what's in this for me? Me is always the focal point of our thinking minds. Where the sound of the intuitive mind in us is, what is true? One deals with what I like, the other deals with first principles, irrespective of whether I like it or not. And these two ways of working, summed up succinctly in, again, 500 BC, Lao Tzu and Tao Te Ching. You can see that slide there, how it works out. Intuitive mind, the home of mysticism and religion and the internal world, and the thinking mind, science, politics, and the external world, one working through acquisition and the other working through surrender. Are you clear about those two differences? Okay. So this is what Lao Tzu had to say on the matter. He said this, in the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of Tao, the transcendent, every day something is dropped. So you can hear acquisition and surrender. So we should take a look at some of the consequences to emerge based on this division. And again, I'd like you to help me with this. Have a look at this statement for a moment. Now remember, we're looking at the consequences of these two minds working in us. Have a look at this statement. Familiar? Okay. How many words in that statement? Eight? Eight words? How many letters in the biggest word in that statement? Four or five? Okay. Any word in that statement that we don't understand? 
No? What does it mean? The statement is, be still and know that I am God. What does it mean? Surrender? What does it mean? Is that what it means? Surrender? Or is there more? What does it mean? Huh? Stop acquiring? What does it mean? To understand what? The eye is the self. Right. Therefore, what does it mean? What it says. <laughs> what do we think it means? There's only one. We're part of the unity, is what it means. Okay. Can you see that it can be heard in different ways depending on which mind in us is working? Be still and know that I am God can be heard with me over here and God over there. Could you put that interpretation on it? That God is speaking, I am here and you're over there. And the other interpretation of it is the one that comes more from what was intended, I believe, is be still and know that I am God. The unity. That there is that in us which is, would you like, God. Those two meanings are possible. And the difference would be where we pick it up. So you can have a completely different meaning depending on where it is heard in the mind. And it's easy to see that depending on the meaning of that simple sentence, it can lead us either to unity, i.e. there's that unity in all of us, or it can lead to duality. I'm over here, God is over there. Can you see that? Well, that's how things ended up, and so we took for a few moments at the possibility of a remedy to this dilemma. As with others, the useful practical work of a philosophy school is to help to restore the balance and help rediscover the unity. Over the years, the school, in its search for truth and through a series of fortuitous meetings, it was led to a living teacher in the East in whom the holy tradition, the perennial philosophy, had been crystallized. And while this was by no means an exclusive connection, under his guidance, it was quickly confirmed that while we are all in search of truth, whether a Hitler or a Mother Teresa, critically, it depends on whether the search proceeds under knowledge or ignorance. Depending on whether it proceeds under knowledge or ignorance, you will either get harmony and peace or disputation and misery. His direction led the school in the direction of meditation and stillness, bringing the intuitive mind into play and helping to restore the balance. The experience of those of us on this path would confirm that it does lead to contentment, peace, and freedom, 
And indeed, it is what keeps us going. And so this is where we find ourselves today in a confused world, but with the benign guidance of the wise always available to those who desire it, pointing the way. So the situation is not without <coughs> hope. To start, there are all of us pursuing the matter, practicing stillness and meditation, seeking to restore the unity in ourselves, and then in our homes and in our communities, our churches, where, as you will know, it is always desperately needed. Perhaps even more impressive, at the cutting edge of the scientific world, where things seem to go off the rails in the first place, you have those scientists who, following in the true spirit of Einstein, have taken the step from physics into metaphysics. Men, for example, like Fritjof Capra, who wrote this, this modern scientist now. The awareness of the profound harmony between the worldview of modern physics and the views of Eastern mysticism has opened up two very different paths for scientists to pursue. They may lead us to the Buddha or the bomb. The really good news, however, is that in this matter we do not have to wait until the government changes or society changes. We do not have to stay on that progressive bandwagon supposedly heading for some utopian future. For we have the wise words of Plato to guide us. And these words are interesting because they come at the end of the Republic, an exhaustive work acquiring into the nature of justice and a just society. And having examined it from top to bottom and from side to side, he concluded, while such a society might never appear on earth, however, and these are his words, in heaven there is laid up a pattern of it, which he who desires may behold, and beholding may set his own house in order. But whether such a one exists, or ever will exist, in fact, is no matter, for he will live after the manner of that city, having nothing to do with any other. In the meantime, with the help of one another and the guidance of the wise, we should be clear that the purpose of religion, aided by the wisdom of philosophy, is to realize, discover, find the transcendent unity. And we should not confuse ever the destination with the means. Maybe we should leave it there and have a cup of tea and let the conversation take off from there. Thank you very much. there it is, ladies and gentlemen, we covered a lot of territory there, philosophy, religion, starting out together, four basic principles, then separating, going their separate ways, 
the consequences of that and the prospect for resolution. They were the main areas we covered. If there's any issues there, and I'm sure there, were, there are so many issues there that uh, there's bound to be something <coughs> that we could understand a bit more about. So it's really over to you and see what questions or observations you have. Right. It's a, a good question. What did he mean? Love your neighbour as yourself. It is one of those statements which is understood in different ways. Those of us who have been working with philosophy for a while would say that the realisation that yourself is the self of all is the true vision of Christianity and that by loving your neighbour as yourself, you fulfil that realisation. By understanding that if you hurt another, you literally hurt yourself. And by bringing happiness to another, you literally bring happiness to yourself. And that the self that he referred to is that self which is one self, the self of all. One of your slides there, you had worship and reason, isn't it? So you had them as two individual lines heading for the same thing. Are they exclusive, or do you put, can you put both of them together? Okay, well, very good question. It just seems to be the case uh, that, as human beings, we fall into different categories. There are the heart cases who enjoy worship, and the head cases uh, <laughs> who enjoy philosophy. The head cases really want to know how you got there. And curiously enough, it's predominantly men seem to want to work this way. The ladies very often are much quicker than the men and can go through the devotional way, through worship, to a conclusion. They may not understand how they got there, but they're happy that they're there, they know that they're there, whereas the men have to work. But it, it's not exclusively a male-female thing. It just means that those of us who like to have answers will work through the head. And for those, philosophy is a means, because philosophy is based on reason seeking truth, as distinct from worship based on belief or faith seeking God. So they're just two different ways. But the important thing is to understand that when you found truth, you found God. Or when you found God, you found truth. The means are different, but the goal is the same goal. Is one quicker than the other? Oh, certainly. The heart cases will be there waiting for the head cases when they show up. <laughs> yeah, puffing and panting, yeah. Oh, it's much faster. Devotional is much faster. But there's something very solid on the other hand about working your way through reason so that when you get there, you're there, you know you're there, you're happily there, and you're unshakably there. Just in during the break there, we had a short conversation. It does appear that the Christian church, certainly from one's experience of it, is primarily devotional. And one reason why it's suspected young people are no longer seem to be attracted to it is that living in the technological era where they're used to getting answers to questions, just the pure devotion no longer satisfies them. And perhaps that's part of the balance that needs to be restored. A little more philosophy to support the devotion. That's personal opinion now.
Would you agree that seeking the truth or seeking the self can be hindered sometimes by religion? And are you thinking some specific way? Could you narrow that for a second? Well, by a religious upbringing, for example. Yes. If we end up with just blind faith, which will crumble at the first hurdle, then you'd have to say yes. But if it is truly devotional and there is some realization of the transcendent, the transcendent God, there's some experience of that, then you can't call it a hindrance then, certainly. Where I think, <laughs> this may be where the question is coming from, if you happen to be one of these head cases in a heart case family, it may be a struggle. Maybe a struggle. And the key there is to find somewhere where the method is based on reason seeking truth. And curiously enough, that then can come back and support what's coming through the hearts and through the devotion and through the worship. Certainly my experience was I grew up in a devotional family. Uh, there was uh, not much philosophy in our household. <laughs> and when I met it later on, fortuitously, I found the bits that were missing all kind of clicked into place. I've been hanging in there ever since. <laughs> so I do understand that this dilemma can happen. In an ideal world, you would have both. And certainly, whatever about worship and reason, in our Western society, we are geared towards the voice of Greece, the voice of politics, science, and the external world. There is no doubt about that. That's what's important. There is no real emphasis placed on falling still. That's not in our Western way of doing things. I mean, maybe the Irish mammies have a lot to answer for here. It's get up and do something. Move. <laughs> Whereas in the uh, Eastern tradition, there is a still regard for the understanding that the higher organ of mind in us, the intellect, which knows the truth and which has discrimination, works in stillness. And therefore, it is appropriate to cultivate stillness. It is useful to cultivate stillness. So the higher organs of mind work and the balance is restored. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of that other mind in us, which is so acquisitive and never satisfied. Never satisfied. More, more, more. Front page of the newspaper, every day, more. And more for who? More for me. That's it. That's the voice. That's the sound. So that balance needs to be restored. You need the thinking mind, obviously, but you need it in its box doing its proper job and the balance of the stillness in the life. And what is helped in that stillness is that in us which recognizes what's true and the voice of reason in us. I still remember to this day the shock and it was a shock that I got with the realization that there was life beyond the ego and the thinking mind. Nothing I had met in my education or my family life had prepared me for that. 
I had grown up in an atmosphere of understand it, figure it out, work it out, do it. And maybe some of you have had the same experience. Thanks very much. Is that attained through, through meditation then? Is that how you found it? You know, the, the truth yes. or that path? I'd be very much keen, to, you know, on that path myself. As a fledgling, really, you know what I mean? I've dabbled in meditation and reading this and that throughout the years. Right. So, in your own experience, is, is that becoming still really just sitting with yourself each day for an hour or a half hour or whatever you can do? Right. Well, very good. That's a very good question. It leads us on to the topic of meditation. First thing to say about meditation is unless there's understanding that there's a difference between the ego-centered discursive mind and the higher intellect, intellectual mind, and that the intellectual mind works in stillness, there's no case for meditation. According to the discursive lower mind, meditation is for the birds. What would you be falling still for? It doesn't make any sense. So if you understand that there are two organs of mind, that they work in different directions, then you have the case for stillness. And one of the ways of falling still, and perhaps one of the best ways of falling still, is to transcend the thinking, discursive, ego-centered, busy, active, noisy mind. And meditation can do that. Especially mantra-based meditation, where you have a sound which has the capacity to go through the discursive mind, to transcend it, and take you to the stillness beyond. That's where it fits into the picture. If we don't understand those two minds, then you won't see the need for or the case for meditation, or for any kind of stillness. So meditation is a way, and a very beneficial way. And increasingly, you'll find it being accepted in the Western world. It comes from the East, obviously, but certainly when introduced to it in the first instance, it was kind of, you didn't know what was really it was about. But it's gradually become quite acceptable now in the, in the Western world, mainly through the work, I think, of the TM movement. Just on the subject of meditation and the mantra. Yes being new to meditation and of curious mind we looked up the word probably because of our discursive minds to discover that there was a similar sounding name for a Hindu god right so maybe you would explain if that falls into the semi-historical or what category <laughs> very good yeah all right well it seems to be important to understand the following, that there are different types of meditation and different types of sounds that are used. But fundamentally, mantra-based meditation, which is meditation based on sound, is designed to take us past the thinking mind, past meaning. That's what its function is. So you don't want a sound necessarily that carries the connotation of meaning something. That will tend to keep you in the lower end of the mind. The sound that's used in the philosophy school for meditation is one that has been offered as being suitable for people living in the Western world and the busy, active Western world of that. And it is offered simply as that, as a universal sound. And there are other versions of it which appear in dictionaries and so on and so forth, but it's offered as a sound, not as the name of God, it's offered as a sound. 
without getting too long-winded about it, the senses derive from the elements. You know, there are five elements. Space, air, fire, water, and earth. And from these elements, which are arranged in a hierarchy, you have the senses, which are also in a hierarchy. And from earth, you have the sense of smell. From water, you have the sense of taste. Fire, you have the sense of sight. Air, the sense of touch. And the highest of them is space, where you have the sense of sound. So sound is used as being the most useful of the senses because it takes you through the highest and in its element space which is limitless. So that's why sound, just sound, not meaning. So it would kind of run counter to that understanding to put a particular meaning on a word which would hold you somewhere in understanding. You want to go beyond that. I hope that's not too technical now, but there you are. I'm very bad at framing questions, but right. we in the West, the hardheads, <laughs> right. the, we obviously have a far higher standard of living than they have in the East. Yes. And we don't place too much value generally on meditation and, and, sure. and all of that kind of thing. And we're a bit fearful of the fanaticism that sometimes goes with religion. How do we measure the virtues of either camp or both camps? Do you know what I'm saying? Because, just to finish that, I lived in New York for a long time, and I, I mixed with a lot of people from many backgrounds. And they virtually all, whether they come from India, or, you know, whether they're devout Muslims or whatever, they all love the creature comforts, and they, they very quickly adapt to yes. the Western way. Yes. And they might spend their few moments at the mosque or the synagogue, right. but... Right. Do you know what I'm trying I to do. get at? Yeah. Is it implicit in your question that in order to value stillness and the sway of life based on meditation, that you have to abandon creature comforts? Is that implicit in the question? I, I don't know if I'm implying that. From what I see, the people who, and you know, in that part of the world, who, who live like that and put a lot of emphasis on it. Yes don't enjoy many creature comforts right. and some of them are quite fanatical in their yes. pursuit of... All right. Okay, well, fanaticism, wherever it rises its head, is based on ignorance and its inevitable consequence is misery. There's nothing in the understanding that we're speaking about tonight, which means that we all give up the creature comfort, <laughs> not, not at all. It is simply the realization that these creature comforts that we have, including these bodies that we have, are not the end of the line. They are merely the transient passing show. It's wonderful, it's there to be enjoyed, but it's not the end of the line. The truly religious man and the true scientist look beyond the transient to that which does not change. And in finding that, one finds happiness, peace, contentment, fulfillment, all the qualities. Fanaticism usually arises, see if you'll agree with this, usually it arises out of confusing the means with the end. 
where we think that the means is the end. In other words, that what is important is to be Islam, Christian. And therefore, if you do that, then you set one means against another and a warring difference. And then you have fundamentalism, fanaticism, and so on and so forth. Like that. The enlightened man sees that religion, in whatever form it comes, is simply the means. And that the end is the same. The end is the transcendent, absolute, God, whatever word you want to use. And that the means are different. And all valuable. We could have come today to Limerick, we could have flown down, we could have walked, we could have cycled, we could have come on a bus, uh, we could have come by car, we did come by car. They're all different means. Some took longer than others, some are more comfortable than others, but ultimately the end is the same. And if you keep the end in view, and don't confuse the end with the means, then you will be free of the curse of uh, fanaticism. Does that go anywhere near answering the question? Sure, it's just that in practice it doesn't seem to actually work out, that's all. Well in practice, if it is not understood, I mean, there's yeah. no accounting for ignorance. Where ignorance prevails, there will be misery, war, difference, and so on. What we are speaking about tonight is that which sure. brings us to the same, not similar, the same. Love your neighbor literally as yourself. But that lies beyond difference, and the fanatic has to surrender his fanaticism to go there. And that is knowledge. Not good works, knowledge. The kind of knowledge we've been sharing this evening. But there is a lot of it about, quite right. There's a lady here. Just. Thank you. Though religions or belief systems are just different means to the same yes. end, is there any particular belief system that you think marries better the philosophy and the knowledge with the worship? What you find when you inquire into this area, wherever you happen to find yourself, the tradition that you find yourself in, there's no need to change that. You may want to deepen that through some enlightenment or through understanding, but the tradition you find yourself in, especially if you believe that there really are no accidents and things are working under law, then the tradition you find yourself in is entirely adequate. And where it would move on would be through enlivening that through study, through some study of philosophy or whatever, which would allow you to deepen the understanding. It does seem, when you look at it, that the different religions emerged to meet different minds at different levels of development. It does seem that way. But nowhere have I come across, or nowhere do I feel that it's necessary to change your tradition in order to realize the end. 
deepen it perhaps, change it, not necessary. The words of Jesus come to me again when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. Good question. And he said to them, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So the notion that it may be over there, you know, in a different system, is perhaps not a, a real, a true notion. In some cases, it may fall out that there is a change, but I don't think it's necessary. Love what you've got, understand what you've got, enjoy what you've got, and practice what you've got. In this age of seemingly maybe less devotion, more interest in technology, and also having considered myself lucky to find out what I have, and referring to the youngsters of today, would you have an easy solution in pointing them without our intense devotion maybe that we grew up with? Yes. Well, there's nothing wrong with intense devotion now. It's just that it doesn't seem to have the appeal of younger generation. That's the way it appears. And what can you do? Well, of course, your example is very important. I would never, ever, ever underestimate the example or the words of a parent. You never, ever know when it will come back or when it will work, but never underestimate it. You may be in despair, but never underestimate it. So, your example, your direction, very important. And basically the idea is that you get to the, especially young children, get to them with the best first. The best first. Best art, best literature, the best music. Best company you can get for them. And perhaps it would really, really be helpful if we were able to answer their questions when they come. The arrogance of youth quickly dismissing everything as rubbish. Useful to be able to deal with them. Through reason, ask them, why do they say that? And then ask them, why do they say that? <laughs> and continue to ask them. It's difficult times for young people. They are bombarded with a materialistic philosophy they have great difficulty in attending for more than five seconds. So, useful to have a steady hand of the rudder. One thing that you can do, it just occurs to me to say to you is this, is to be there when they come. Children don't come when they're supposed to come, when you're ready for them. They come when you're reading the newspaper, when you're watching your favorite program, when you're doing something important. That's when they choose to show up. And to be there and to be available and to stop what you're doing and meet them is useful. They don't come that often, but when they come, it's good to be there. Put down the paper. Listen. The school in Dublin, because of the difficulty of the thing, has evolved parenting courses for parents in the younger age group and the older age group. Because the need is great. One little trick i just offer you, it's not a trick, it's a technique that might be helpful to you is this, is that 
if you want to know how to behave with son or daughter, just remember father or mother. If the son or daughter happens to meet housewife or businessman, no communication is possible. And there's something magical in remembering the role or relationship, which is that it always seems to be possible to act appropriately. So in other words, father knows how to deal with son. Businessman hasn't a clue. It's like husband coming home and meeting mother rather than wife. What happens, do you think, in that situation? <laughs> he is t spoken to the same way the children have been spoken to all day. Wipe your feet. <laughs> mother emerges. So it's wife that meets husband, husband that meets wife, and father or mother that meets son or daughter. And in that is the protection. You won't get this in the psychology books now. This arises in the moment and is appropriate to the moment. A cuddle or a smack, it'll arise in the moment, provided you're in that mode. There's a gentleman at the back there. All right, just getting back to philosophy and religion, in your lecture you described religious people or people who are very religious and devoted to yes. a God as, say, the, the hard cases and people who would be studying philosophy as the head cases, but both roads leading to the same place. I'm just wondering, is it possible for a head case to get there without becoming any, any bit of a hard case? <laughs> you really had a hard time growing up, didn't you? Eh? <laughs> well, it's just... Because a lot of reading I've done, you know, would put philosophy over there and religion sure. way over there. Yeah, yeah sure. You know, yeah. So it does seem to be the case. I don't know many of you are in philosophy groups, but if you're in philosophy groups, you will notice this phenomenon. And it is simply this, that people who work through the heart speak in a particular way, which the heads cannot understand. And people who work through their heads speak in a way which the hearts cannot understand. There's a third category. There's the gut people, the action people. And they're listening to the two of these, and they don't say too much at all. But they're thinking, and what they're thinking is, there's nothing wrong with either of those, that a good dose of hard work wouldn't sort out. <laughs> and you get all three. But you're quite right, and they are different. Fortunately, fortunately, the good Lord and the system is there to satisfy all the types. And the experience here is working with philosophy is that it does deepen the devotional aspect in us. Not through blind faith, but through insight or through understanding. Definitely does. And I would think that anybody who has developed the rational side in them would probably be more devotional than somebody who's just devotional and not balanced with any understanding. That may go nearer to answering the question. And similarly, true devotion would always carry something of the uh, understanding that goes with the 
the head types. Would you like to ask further about that? or? My question is really, the impression I get from your lecture is that it would be impossible to get there, if you like to call it that, without the mixture of, say, religion and philosophy, or religion on its own. As you said, the hard cases will be there waiting for the head cases when they arrive. But it's just it's quicker, yes. It, so you're saying religious devotion is a quicker way of getting there than, if you like, going through the twin paths of philosophy yes. and religion. That's the impression I got from Right, you. okay. Well, it would also be fair to say that true devotion would carry something of the understanding of the philosopher, just as the discovery of truth would carry something of the devotion of the worshipper. It looks like if you pursue the one, the other will balance out somehow. Truly pursue them. Certainly in the end result, the end game, in realization of the truth, then there could be no lack or loss there. There could be no bits missing. Certainly the experience here is that as you proceed along the, as a head, speaking as a head case here now, as you proceed along that path, your devotional bits are developed as well. You still can't understand what the hearts are talking about, but uh, <laughs> you don't become non-devotional, you become more devotional. That's my experience. As somebody who's just beginning in this now and finding it difficult to even get to four minutes a day of the exercise, oh, yes. uh, is it very important that you do the hour of meditation or how important is it? Right. You haven't actually started meditating yet? No, okay. But you're doing a little pause exercise, yes. Okay. Well, it's very useful to do the pause exercise. It's very good. little bit of routine. Are you managing that at all? Difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. Okay. Well, that would be pretty standard. But you know what this exercise involves? You all know what this exercise involves? It involves finding a chair. It involves sitting down and doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it in context here. If you can't do this, forget it. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, you do make a valid point that we are going so fast for so long that two minutes to stop, to put the brakes on, and it is very useful to see this, is hard for us. And the difficulty shows us the dilemma. The difficulty teaches us more than the success. If you face the fact that we can't stop, not the idea that I'll do it later or I can do it you know, when I've got time and all that kind of stuff. If you face the fact that we can't stop, you're on the way out of the dilemma. These exercises are interesting in that they offer us choice. Our normal way of working is to work through our system, which is we do things the way we've always done them, habitually, mechanically, in our sleep, if you like. We can just do them. Along comes this exercise which says, stop, pause, fall still. Now, for the first time, perhaps, you have choice. There's no choice in will I go to Mallorca or will I go to South Africa. That's, that's just our ordinary system working. Real choice is, here I am tearing along through life. Here is an exercise which says, stop, now I have choice. I can continue on mechanically, 
or I can stop. The opposite to the mechanical action is conscious action. And the nature of conscious action and what makes it useful is that it requires effort. If there's no effort, then there's no opposition, there's no work. So it's the effort to stop that makes it useful. It's the contrast of stopping, the conscious as against the mechanical, that gives us choice. So rather than being phased by that, you welcome that and say, here is a moment of choice where I can stop being mechanical and be a little conscious. Or, if you like, instead of being bound by my system, can go free, even for a few months. There'll always be resistance. If there's no resistance, the exercise wouldn't be worth anything. Resistance is what makes it useful. One final thing to say is that the virtue of meditation has, well, just like the exercise as well, that as you practice it, the energy to do it increases. You've got to look at what you're practicing. It's easy for us to practice not doing it. And what you practice, you strengthen. So if you're practicing not doing it, then that's what you get. <laughs> you get very good at it. <laughs> and if you practice doing it, then you're strengthening that side. There'll always be resistance. And don't be put off by the lies we tell ourselves. I'll do it in a minute. Big lie, you know? I could do it if I wanted to do it, but I'm not going to do it now. I'll do it later. Lie. When it presents itself and the resistance comes, that's the golden moment. That is a real moment, a moment of choice, a moment of going free. Magic moment. Not a nuisance moment, magic moment. See if you can stop for two minutes. In Ireland, we used to have the Angelus. People used to stop. Well, if you do, if you can stop, good. The famous picture of the Angelus, the man leaning on a spade with his cap off, he has stopped. Well, certainly, I don't know how it is in Limerick, but certainly in Dublin, it's bells ringing on the radio while we're charging through life. Oh, very good. Religion requires a leap of faith to reach unity. At the end of the day, does not philosophy, reason, and quietening of the mind bring you to a certain stage, but at that stage you will then also require a leap of faith? Correct. The last stage will be a leap of faith. But the difference, and it might be a useful difference to mark out, is this, that Faith based on reason would be that faith which would say that I know, based on the journey, based on the reason journey, that when I kneel here or acknowledge here, what I'm kneeling or acknowledging is true. In other words, it's based on solid ground, which is entirely different from what you might call blind faith. But ultimately, you're right. Final step is to surrender the ego, the I know, the I don't know, just to surrender that, and that requires faith. But it's based on those blocks of reason. That's maybe just a minor point, but 
what he says about all the different religions coming at different times, different times of evolution. Could that not be divisive on its own? A statement like that, you know, especially our experience of religions, we know better. Hmm. Yeah. The breakthrough in discovering the ultimate reality seemed to happen spontaneously across the world at roughly the same time, you know, in a large space of time. Around 500 BC, this was happening. Some would argue that it was known further back than that. And that breakthrough stood, and then evolving from that were all the different approaches to it, all the different religions that emerged from it. And if those different means, those different ways of approaching it, different styles of approaching it, you remember you could put it as worship, as infinity, as wonder, or seeking identity, all those different ways of approaching it, if the ways are seen as the end product, then it is hugely divisive. Because you're now talking about my way is better than your way. And so you have, and God knows in our country we've seen a lot of that. The key thing is to remember that whatever path we are on is a means. It is a means. The destination is the same. It is to realize the truth the transcendent God, or my true self, whatever way you want to put it. If we don't make that distinction and think that the means is the end, we've got trouble. And I think what you're talking about is that kind of strife that comes from people saying, my way is better than your way, or my way is the true way. That's not really the issue. The issue is to make the distinction between the approach and the destination. The destination is the same, and all of the time, and you will have heard this in your own community as we've heard it, all of us have heard it, is that the transcendent God is not the issue. It is the approach to the transcendent God that causes the grief. And if we could be clear about the destination, then we're clear about that which unites us rather than stuck with the method or the approach which divides us. Methods and approaches are different. Destination is the same. That's a key point from tonight's talk. It also, I think if I have it correctly from the talk, this harmony of religions means that you have positive respect, not just toleration, of the religion of others. You hold to your own ideal, but not the exclusion of everybody or anybody else positive respect, not just toleration. Before the breakthrough, there was paganism. Where would you see the role of paganism in today's religions? In today's religions? Well, interesting. In paganism, the nature was worshipped. You might say that our religions have evolved now, but do we still revere nature? They were just a bit more primitive, the religions, a bit more primitive. They were in dance and touch and rituals of various kinds. But the big breakthrough is the realization that behind all of these rituals, behind all of the phenomena of the creation, human, animal, vegetable, mineral, behind all that there is this transcendent unity. It may be possible that in some of those early pagan religions that that was acknowledged as well. 
that they weren't just honouring the tree or nature, that they were honouring that for which it stood. Don't know. Just very interested by the fact that we are not looking for something that isn't in us. And you say we are science and all this is blocking out the fact that that may be there, we're looking for evidence of that. What are we saying here? Is it that it is a... Are we talking about a leap, a leap of faith to accept that there is this in us and that it is just a matter of stirring it up or finding it or connecting with it? You're telling me that you're quite convinced about it, you're quite convincing, and I probably believe it myself, but, you know, where are we getting all this positivity from? Sure, sure. Well, if it is in us and it is ultimate in us, no one is going to be able to prove it. Because it being ultimate, any proof would not be ultimate, it would be over here somewhere. So the only real proof of its existence is unity with it. You can't think yourself there, but you can move from thinking to being from thinking to being, so that instead of a concept, you move from what you think to what you are. And you do that, as any good philosophy student will tell you, you do that by moving from thinking to being by being still. There is no value put on stillness in our Western <coughs> world, really. But in stillness, the scientific mind <coughs> the proving mind, the seeking mind, the searching mind, all of that falls quiet, but you don't disappear. You're there, but there's no questions, and there are no answers. You're just still. And in that stillness, there is the possibility of uniting with that which is your true self. That's the only proof. What you would expect in such a, a circumstance would be that you would feel fulfilled, at peace, content, happy. It's known that the attributes of this ultimate transcendent being are threefold. Knowledge, consciousness and happiness. The proof of that is that as we go about our world everything we do is either to know why do we all come here tonight? To know, to be happy, or to live a full life. These are reflections of the true nature. And the realization, the useful realization is that rather than starting from the point of thinking that we haven't got them, that something is missing, and we've got to go get it. So we start reading the books, going to the courses, we're up the Himalayas, we're looking for the guru, we're looking for the killer question, that's going to solve all my problems. Rather than going that route, in the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. Where philosophy comes in and directs us and says, hold on a moment, the truth is what you are, not what you think. And the way to it is not acquisition, the way to it is to surrender all your thinking and your doing. And what's left is the truth is what you are. So the big breakthrough is 
that instead of ever seeking and never finding to stop, fall still, and there it is. Always available, always the same, always accessible, and always satisfying. That's the only proof you're going to get. <laughs> it's quite easy, quite straightforward. Like that. <laughs> yeah. Interesting about it is that that offers a simple solution, whereas the thinking seeking offers an ever increasing complex solution. It becomes ever and ever more complicated. Beware complexity. The truth about any unity, anything that you're looking for which is one and singular, is it must be utterly utterly simple. Einstein, who was never able to prove it, said, he knew it was there, it's the unified field, convinced that it would be simple. One is simple, beautiful, and light. So we're not looking for any heavy stuff. The heavy stuff has to go. You can park your brilliance for a few minutes <laughs> and be still. Michael, as part of the, the talk, you drew distinction between sort of Eastern philosophy and, and Eastern Western. civilization yes. and, and the way the Western civilization is going with the scientific emphasis. Would you agree that as part of this continuing journey, which is, which is continuing, started 500 BC and, or 5000 BC or whatever, that we're seeing another evolution now in that the Western tendency now is to turn away and to seek the truth and the Eastern countries through industrialization etc are now going to <laughs> yes. the western yes. and you just need to look at the self-help books uh, books in, in, in western bookshops people searching for something is there another twist in, sure. in, in this journey not only is there another twist in the story but the twist goes on and on and on and what it raises for us is this prospect and this is very western raises the prospect for us that society is going somewhere that we are evolving to some conclusion or some destination where all our fondest wishes will be met. That idea is running through it. The truth of the matter is that society and history is only going where it has always gone, which is round in circles. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it goes down. Sometimes the west, sometimes the east. Round and round it goes. However, the wise man is the man who realizes that it's not society and this apparent progress that offers the solution to the problem, but at any point on that cycle, at any point in that cycle, individual souls have stopped, looked up, or looked back, and found themselves. Not as a mass movement, but as an individual. What they found was the same, but they found it individually. So the key thing is not too much to be concerned with the great waxing and waning in the world, which goes on. This ideal state that we're talking about, as Plato said, may never, never exist in this world. But for an individual, an individual man at any point, irrespective of the circumstances, can stop and connect with the pattern of it laid up in heaven and live after its precepts or accords. So the cycle is there, as you say, not critical. It's not going anywhere. It would be foolish to think that the government is going to get us there. 
<laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> Our society is going to get there. It's not going to happen. Or religion. Or religion. Yes, well, religion, again, just to be absolutely clear about it again, religion facilitates. It points the way. It's not it. And there are many ways and many different ways of approaching it. It was in response to the last question that you had said that the individual very often is the person who will become enlightened and find that by whatever means, be religion, philosophy, or however they come across that. And I wonder, and that was why I made the last comment, you know, certainly religion doesn't seem to be, it is a mechanism, there are many different religious mechanisms by which it can occur, but I often wonder when we refer to the one God, are the various religions referring to our God, i.e., you know, the positive respect that we should have for all people of differing faiths, the economical viewpoint has been put forth. I just wonder myself, is there that perception that exists, I think it exists, but by those who practice their various religions, that it is our God and our one and only God, which was mentioned earlier on. Yeah, well there you are, there you have it, that is the work of ignorance, and ignorance will always divide and always cause misery, wherever it rises. You can see from the list that we produced there in the talk, there are all sorts of different names, all attempts or symbols to portray that which is transcendent. One God, the same, the same everywhere, and different means. If we mistake the means for the end, then it becomes my God, my religion, and you are out. <laughs> Very divisive, always causes trouble. But it is an ignorant point of view. It is not an enlightened point of view. And there is no end to ignorance. There's no explanation for ignorance. There's no accounting for ignorance. But wherever it arises, the mark of it is trouble, misery. So is mankind to endure that, or one of the questions you posed was, what would be the resolution? The resolution is to realize the truth, which is one God, one truth. For example, forget about religion for a moment, just work with reason. Reason will tell you that the truth must be one. You can't have two truths, that's a contradiction in terms. So reason will take you to one truth. And if you can't handle God, perhaps you can handle the truth. And if you can handle one truth, then that transcendent reality, I'm not talking about true things now or true words, truth itself. If you can connect with that, then you connect with that which is the same. There's an enlightened view, and that will take you past the barriers and limitations of an exclusive God. I know certainly through the practices that we've been involved in the school that um, this enlightenment manifests itself in many wonderful ways in life and living, but I just wonder how that can be transferred to a movement or should we concern ourselves with the transfer of that? Let me just ask you this, ask this question. I'll ask the question of the group. If you change, is your family changed? Yeah. 
Yes. If your family is changed, is the street on which that family lives changed? Yes. Is the city in which that street is changed, if you change? Is the country changed? Is the world changed? How do you change the world? You change yourself. How do we think you change the world? Change everybody else. <laughs> Thank you. On the two ends, you've got the philosophy and the religion. Um, in philosophy, when you're sort of like looking at some of the truth of the philosophers or the perfect circle, you know, it's like an idea. Then you've got Jesus and religion and the scriptures. There's more like in his truth, there's a love. There's a personal love and also a love for everybody. Mm. Is there a danger then with philosophy sometimes that it's, you lose out on that love? Sure. Unless you, so that's why you need the mix between the both. You need them both, yeah. It's, it's so important. It's interesting that in philosophy material that we're using in Dublin, I don't know if it's come through here to you in Belfast or not, but part two philosophy is about happiness and part three philosophy is about love. Twelve sessions on love. I think acknowledging the very difficulty that you're pointing out, that it's easy to get into a dry intellectualism and miss this element. That's why I would say if someone did not have the knowledge or, you know, of the philosophy and just had love, so if they lived in love and lived a life of service, surely they're connecting to the same... Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. without having read a book or... And let's be clear about it. Based on what was said here this evening, reading books is not going to get you there. Questions, no matter how brilliant they are, and answers, no matter how brilliant they are, are not going to get you there. It's beyond question and answer. It's beyond books. You find it in yourself. If you have love, all the books and all the questions and all the answers may just take you to the point of realizing that love is the natural in-between. Love is what binds us all together. And so you found it. One word, if it takes you there, is better than a room full of books, than a library full of books. One lecture, one session in philosophy, if it gets you there, is better than years of banging your head. It's not volume that counts, it's insight, understanding, penetration to the core of the issue. And that's only possible because what we're looking for is what we are. We already got it. We just have to realize that, accept that, whatever the right word is. So therefore, if there's a God and this God is part of us all, and there's love through us all, then there's nothing really we have to do at all. This is all only a bit of crack. The greatest, to a certain degree. It's the greatest show on earth. And what we have to do, discover the truth about yourself. That's what you have to do. In that, it doesn't mean that you lead a, a bad life or anything like that. You discover the truth about yourself, and then you would honor that which you are. You need a good, productive, useful life. But you would know that the good, productive, useful life is serving the truth, not seeking the truth.
But seeking the truth, it's the seeking bit, or trying yeah. to get a bit, you know. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. If we're the analogy of the prodigal son that left the father's house, right, and ended up eating the meal from the goats until we decided to go back home. What I'm saying is, in that story of the prodigal son, not everything was taken away from him. Sure. And just it reminded me when you said about the change in mindset of you like thousands of years ago, I'm wondering, you know, is it within our ability to make that change? Or is it just about accepting who we are right now? And that whatever nature is there, you know, the nature will be there. And it's just about acceptance that there is laws that govern us. And as long as you live with love and service to others, that, that that's sufficient. Yes, and you can, you can meet it at that level, certainly. But the ultimate level, the ultimate level is the realization of the truth or the uniting with it. That's the ultimate. And that comes from understanding of an insight. All the rest is fine, it's fine. But the ultimate step is there. Michael, I just wonder, there seems to be a, a difference in approach with some teachers. And I've heard from the Eastern perspective that the, the individual goes and gets a path towards this realization or liberation. And I've also heard Eastern teachers say, in answer to like some of the questions here, you know, what should I do? And some of the Eastern teachers will say there's no one to choose what to do because there is no individual, that there is only one. And there seems to even within the Eastern philosophy this different explanation, if you like, or a different way of presenting the same thing. Mm. Could you say a little bit about why there is, if you like, a, a slight difference in the, the approach, if you like? Well, it's the great variety. Ultimately, you come to the same, whether you go through it through Eastern or Western approaches. Mm -hmm. The Western approach, the one that only seems to be possible for us living in our Western scientific world, is to work your way through reason to the point where you're prepared to surrender. In the East, although what's happening is happening in the East, it's becoming westernized. But in the East, you can still find that attitude of surrendering, first surrendering, as the path. Now, there seem to be two different paths. But the destination is the same. And so there's a gentleman here. We were saying that what is the purpose in life? The purpose is to find ourselves and the truth. And when we do, if we're fortunate enough to do that, then is that a crescendo of which everything thereafter is the same then because we are in a state of knowing? I'm just wondering, can you give us an insight into what it's like then when we are sorted and knowing? Does it continue to be a state of nirvana? There is this interesting point that we should take heart from. In the practice of philosophy, increasingly the idea of what I am takes hold. It can become naturalized in us, so that you know it, and you are content, and you are satisfied, irrespective of what the world is throwing at you. 
But is that position, I can't think of a completely accurate word for it. And it's not unlike that, that you, whatever you're doing, you are content, and that's all there is. You're not rushing anywhere, you're not seeking anything, you're simply content now. One of the things I've been trying to reconcile is the, the idea of something being unchanging and the idea within Buddhism of, so if you crave that an unchanging, it's a craving that you should try and get rid of, but it's a, it's a desire for some sort of permanence. Sure. Sure. And I've struggled through this term one of the course and tonight trying sure. to reconcile or whether I should reconcile those yes. two things. Well, it's a very good point. The struggle to reconcile it is a kind of thinking process. And the reconciliation does not lie in thinking, it relies on being. So, you can't really think yourself to the unchanging, or reconciling the unchanging. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming this busy week. It was delightful to be here with you and share all those good questions. And I wish you good luck and in the new term. And as we said in the talk, keep going. Good night, everybody. Thank you.